text is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It is the end of the letter. We will be reading verse 12 to verse 28, the very last verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So please now listen carefully as God addresses you from His Word, from His holy, His inerrant, His infallible Word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast, testing everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands forever. Please be seated. In the letter to the Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 22, we read about the Old Testament tabernacle and the system of worship that almost everything was purified with blood. Whether that was the utensils themselves, the things that were used in the service of worship, they had to be sprinkled with blood. Whether that was the priest who was serving in the tabernacle, he had to have uh, blood placed on him. The tabernacle itself had to have blood sprinkled on it. Eventually, through the sacrifices in the Old Testament, once they were sacrificed, the, the blood of a sacrifice would be sprinkled on the people of God as well. Nearly everything in Old Testament worship had to be sprinkled with blood. And the purpose of that was to consecrate it to God, to take those things that in some way before they were used for that purpose were just ordinary things. Maybe they might seem extraordinary, golden objects, golden lampstands and things like that, but they were just earthly things. Bread and oil and golden utensils and fabrics and clothing for the priests and all these things. Not to mention sinful people themselves, the priests who were sinful. They had to have this blood sprinkled upon them to consecrate them so that they could serve in the temple, 
so that they could serve the people of God. Everything had to be set apart for this special use. Uh, The word sanctification, which is so important in our text, we, we read in verse 23, Paul's prayer for the people of God, that they would be sanctified completely. Sanctification is consecration to God. It's taken from the Old Testament. It's taken from this system of worship where everything had to be sprinkled with blood. Everything had to be consecrated to God so that it was fit to be used in the presence of a consuming fire, an all-holy God. And so what we read here as Paul closes his letter is that we, as God's people, have been chosen by God to be set apart by Him, to be consecrated, to belong to Him, and to serve Him, to be sanctified completely in spirit in soul, and in body, to be sanctified completely. And that is the theme of this text this morning. You might have noticed, if you were paying attention, that there are a lot of commands in this text. In fact, there are 20 separate commands in this text. And I think there are probably at least four additional implications or implied commands in this text. So we've got a lot to grapple with as God's people. God is calling us to, uh, to, to all of these different things. Um, and yet, we could all place them under the heading of total sanctification. That's what God wants for us, and even beyond just simply wants that for us. That is what God will work in the lives of each and every one of His saints, in each and every one of His children, is total consecration unto Him, total sanctification to be God's, and to serve Him in this world. Now, you might remember from weeks previous that these are new converts in Thessalonica. If we were to go back to Acts 17, we'd see the circumstances of this letter having been written that Paul was ministering along with Silas to to the, the saints in Thessalonica. And they had to break off that ministry very abruptly and and to flee because of persecution. And so Paul continued his ministry through his letters to to the Thessalonian Christians. Uh, And he is encouraging them as new converts and showing them as new converts that they must break with their old way of life. There must be a decisive and a complete break with that old paganism. You think about how they're receiving this letter and what they need to know, right? Because they, not that long ago, were serving demons, were serving idols, were worshiping idols. And they have to be reminded, just as we do, even uh, for those of us who have been Christians for, for many years, that as God's people, we must have a complete and total break with the ways of the world. And we have a lot of different commands that show us the path of sanctification in this text. Now, I think it could be somewhat overwhelming if we were to try to approach these just as separate commands. And so what I've tried to do is break this down under three main headings that I want to look at this morning with you. And and those three headings are, first of all, that sanctification comes to us by God's grace through our shepherds. Sanctification is church Centered. It's not 
merely us striving as individuals on our own. And that is so important. That sanctification, in fact, is impossible when you isolate yourself from God's church. And not even just that, but when you isolate yourself from the ministry of the shepherds of God that he has appointed over you. You can't be sanctified without the help of the shepherds. You will be a sheep who goes astray, inevitably. So that's our first point. The second one is that sanctification takes place in the flock. And what I mean by that is simply sanctification is not just about me as an individual. It's not just about you in your own struggle with personal sin. But it is about how you are related to each and every one of your brothers and sisters here this morning and in the flock at Redeemer and in the broader church. Sanctification is not an individualistic endeavor. It's not something that you do on your own. It's not just about you with your personal struggles with sin. It is so much in the New Testament. It's so much oriented towards our interactions with other people. That's where it gets really hard, doesn't it? Because people are sinners, just like we are. And we find it difficult to live together in the community of God's people with other sinners, because their sinful desires butt up against our sinful desires, and we find conflict. And so sanctification, this total consecration, takes place, secondly, in the flock. Thirdly and finally, sanctification is only possible for us as we take our eyes off of the things of this world and we lift them up to heaven, that we have hearts that are gripped by the grace of our Savior Jesus Christ that enables us compels us even to look away from all of the distractions of this world, even the good things of this world that can easily become distractions, and to lift our eyes up to heavenly truths and heavenly realities that will enable us then to fight sin. So total consecration, that is our theme this morning. First of all then, looking at how consecration comes to us through our shepherds, and and how it's a a church-centered thing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That's how Paul begins this series of lengthy exhortations, is he starts with the shepherds. He starts with our pastors, our elders, and the, the role that God has given them to watch out for our souls. Paul then ends this lengthy section of commands, taking us back to the church, doesn't he? Brothers, pray for us, verse 25. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I've put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Paul is exercising his unique capacity as an apostle to to be able to place someone under under oath in that way, but he's exercising his unique shepherding uh, role there to to call God's people to listen carefully to what God is calling them to in this very letter that Paul has written. You see the, the power of Paul's letter, right? This is no mere letter. This is the very word of God that compels obedience. And he ends with that blessing then, Uh, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, it's not always easy, is it, to submit to our elders. 
right? Submission is just not an easy thing for anyone, even for God's people, because submitting to someone else requires us to die to ourselves. It requires us to put to death those natural desires for autonomy. We want to be the boss. We want to be in charge. Every one of us struggles with that to some degree. And that's just the sinful impulse that still remains, even in God's people, is that we want to be in charge. But God, in His love, has placed shepherds over us. It might be easy, I think, to think of our shepherds as being a limit on us, as somehow constraining us, keeping us from being free. But if we see it from God's perspective, this is a, this is a gift of love that God gives His church, to place shepherds over them, shepherds who have been tasked to look out for the souls of God's people. Uh, there, there are sobering words, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, where the shepherds, the elders of God's people are called to keep watch over our souls. He even says that they will give an account to God for how they have kept watch over our souls. What an awesome responsibility for the shepherds of God's people. That's where I said there are some implied commands here, you know, speak to the shepherds. Right? Uh, that is the responsibility of the shepherds of God's people, is to watch over our souls. But that's how God watches over our souls. Because God loves us. Because He knows that we will go astray as sinful sheep. He has placed shepherds over us to guide us and to direct us in the things of God. To look out for our souls, to see whether we are trusting in Christ and following Him, if not to encourage us, to strengthen us, even, as it says, to admonish us. Uh, to, to admonish someone is not to give an opinion. Right? To admonish someone is to see that they are going astray, that, that there's something in their life, there's some action in their life, there's something that they believe, perhaps, that isn't right, and to strongly warn them about those dangers. I, I remember um, not that long ago when Pastor Mark was reading through Ezekiel and, and the, the warning to the shepherds and just how staggering that is and, and how sobering that is as a shepherd um, that there is someone that is called to be uh, on the watchtower looking out for the well-being of the people of God and that if they refuse to carry out that ministry that the blood of God's people is on their head, is, is, is what Ezekiel said. You know, that's a staggering responsibility, but that's God's love for us as his people, that he would give us those shepherds to look out for us, to admonish us. And, and that's not easy, is it? It's not easy to receive admonishment, because admonishment means that someone has said to us, what you're doing is not healthy for your soul. What you are doing, the way you're living, what you believe is bad for you. Who, who likes hearing that? Who likes hearing that you are on the wrong path and that you need to turn around? But to remember that that is because of God's love for us, not because God has appointed the shepherds over us to beat us, you know, and, and to, to uh, puff up their egos and, and, and to make themselves feel good about themselves. No, but out of kindness for us because we will go astray without their help. 
Now, if you find yourself struggling to have a submissive attitude towards those that God has placed over you, look at what Paul says about why we should submit to them, why we should esteem them very highly. First of all, they were over us in the Lord. They didn't place themselves there. The Lord did. He has appointed them for that task. So to be in opposition to those that God has placed over us is to be in opposition to God himself. Secondly, we are to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Right? You, might, you might find one of your shepherds to be difficult. You might find that you, you don't really have, you don't see eye to eye with them. You might not find that it's always easy to be in agreement. But God doesn't call us to submit ourselves to our leaders because uh, we find it easy, because we agree with them on everything and in every way. He calls us to submit ourselves to them because of their work, because of the office that God has appointed them to. Right? That's the reason that we are called to have a submissive attitude towards those who are over us, because of their office, because of their work. Because God has appointed them to this very task. Now this is what we would say a ministerial authority, right? Shepherds and elders, they don't have absolute authority. They can't come to us and say, well, I don't like your, your green socks today. I think you should wear yellow socks. Um, that, that's not within their authority. Their authority, though, is, is defined by Scripture. Their authority is to apply God's word to our hearts. And in that sense, they must absolutely admonish us. When they see us going astray out of love for us, they are called to come up to the the wandering sheep and to take them and to protect them and to keep them from wrecking their souls. Each and every one of you this morning. That's why God has placed these, these leaders over you. So I call you as God calls you to esteem them very highly, not because of how you feel about them naturally, but because of their work. Not because of how you feel about them naturally, but because they have been placed in that role in the Lord. And you will will go astray if you cannot bring yourself to have a submissive attitude towards those shepherds that are over you. God has put them over you out of love. Now, we also have brothers and sisters in the church. And that is a a way in which we can find ourselves in conflict as well, can't we? Uh, When we are in the flock. So our second point is looking at what God calls us to with regard to one another in the flock. There is a transition in verse 14, this is a, one of the things Paul does often in this letter, is he, he says uh, something to the brothers, right? And of course, that, that includes brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, when he says, we urge you brothers, something like that, you see that he's transitioning to a new point. And the, and the point here is moving to the whole church. What does God call us to with reference to our brothers and sisters in Christ, one another in the church? Well, first of all, he admonishes us to admonish the idle, 
I think admonish again, I want to reiterate that admonish is a, is a very strong word in the Bible. To admonish someone is not to just give an opinion and say, you might want to think about this. To admonish is to see someone going astray and to warn them about the dangers to their soul if they continue down that path, that they will make shipwreck of their soul. So that's even something within the body. When we see brothers and sisters um, walking down a dangerous, sinful path, not because we're better than them, not because we have it all figured out, not in an arrogant fashion, but out of love, to warn them that as a, as a Christian, you cannot continue down this path. You can't or you will make shipwreck of your soul. And the first thing that he begins with, the ESV that I'm reading from translates as idol. That, that's, a, that's a legitimate um, application of what this word indicates, but it actually is a broader word. Uh, it, it's something that indicates someone who's undisciplined, who's disorderly. If you have an ESV, you can actually see that it has a footnote for that word. But an undisciplined person, a disorderly person, think about it like this. In the army, you have sentries who go out to the front and who are meant to warn people, uh, to, to warn the unit behind them if danger is coming. Right? And imagine how devastating it would be if the sentry out in front decides he's going to abandon his post and leave. Right? When the enemy comes, there's no warning. And it would be total devastation. That's what's indicated with this word here. Someone who is living a a life that is not in accordance with with what God has called them to. Someone who is disordered in their life. So idleness is is certainly an application of that because someone who is idle is someone who is not doing what God has called them to. So this applies to all of us, right? If you were a father, are you carrying out the role that God has given you as a father to watch out for the spiritual well-being of your family? To look out for the, the well-being of your wife and your children if, if, you, if you have children. If you are a mother, are you fulfilling the God-ordained role of a mother uh, to, uh, to um, attend to the needs of your family and to have this focus on uh, the, the, the well-being of your family? Are you attending to that or are you, as a, a child, are you... Submitting to your parents, right? Or are you living a disordered life? Are you living a life that um, uh, is causing you to abandon the very vocation that God has called you to? That's what this indicates here, is someone who is not living according to God's call on their life in whatever role that they have, as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as an elder, as a deacon, anything. It's not fulfilling that role. It's living in an undisciplined way. Um, there's the phrase that you, you often hear, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? And that's a, it's a very true statement. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. When we are not doing what God has called us to in whatever role that he has placed us, when we are lazy, I mean, that's certainly an application of this. When we're lazy, it, it is the perfect and ripe a ground for Satan to come in and to tempt us and to lead us away from Christ. Right? Uh, just simply laziness, not working hard in those vocations where God has placed us. And so that means in your job, 
but also working hard as a father, working hard as a mother, working hard as a child, as a husband, as a wife, working hard in what God has called you to. When you, when you are lazy, when you are idle, when you are undisciplined in this way, that is exactly when Satan will come in and he will fill that void with sin. The, the classic example in Scripture is David, isn't it? When David goes up onto the rooftop, when he should have been out, and the text is very clear, he should have been out in battle, leading his men. That is what God called him to. And because he was not obeying God's call in his life at that point, he was living an undisciplined life, he was doing what he wanted. He goes up onto the rooftop, he sees Bathsheba, and he is led into sin. So we are called, out of love for one another, to admonish those that we see who are living disordered lives, undisciplined lives, idle lives, out of love for them because they will damage themselves. They will make it so that the void that is in their life where they should be striving hard to serve the Lord will be filled with sinful things. Encourage then, next in this uh, sequence, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Two separate commands. Uh, the faint-hearted uh, are those who, for a variety of reasons, are struggling as believers to trust in the Lord. Uh, maybe even uh, struggling to follow His call in their life. They're struggling with specific sins. They're faint-hearted. They're worried about the future. They're anxious. You know, they, they don't have a, a robust uh, trust in that moment in the Lord. And we are called, as brothers and sisters, to encourage them, to, to help them, to uh, get over that, right? To, to, to find strength in the Lord. Uh, not to remain faint-hearted, uh, not, not to say to them, oh, it's just okay. No, we encourage them to become stout-hearted, to use an old word, uh, to become stout-hearted in the Lord. And, and the only way to encourage them in that right, is to bring them back to the things of God, to bring them to the Scriptures constantly and to show them their reasons for being stout-hearted in the Lord. Because the Lord is good. Because the Lord will deal with those anxieties that they face. He will give them grace. He will give us grace to find contentment where He's placed us. Help the weak. Who are the weak? Well, I think it's probably not uh, primarily talking about the physically weak here. That word can sometimes mean that in the Scripture. But probably also like the faint-hearted, those who are weak in their trust, those who are as Jesus said, uh, the, the bruised reed, right? And, and, and such tender-hearted words from Christ that the bruised reed he will not break. And that's the same call for us, right? As there are those in our midst, there are, are some here this morning, I know, I'm sure, that feel very weak, who feel very weak in their trust. They, they, they feel weighed down by the cares and the burdens of this world. And our call brothers and sisters, is to encourage them, to help them, to help lift them out of that weakness, not just to simply leave them there, not simply to, uh, to express that we understand and that we're, we're with them, but to help them rise out of that weakness. Be patient with them all. That's not easy, is it? 
Be patient. There are so many different reasons for us to not be patient with one another. Right? I would be patient. I would be a lot more patient if all of you would be more patient with me. Um, and, and we laugh, but that's, isn't that honestly how we feel so often when it actually comes down to showing patience? It's hard because the other people are doing the things that, uh, that they should stop doing, and I'm the one who always has to be the patient one, isn't it? Right. But that's not actually true. That's not actually true. Each and every one of us um, struggles to be patient with one another because we're all sinners and we all sin against each other. And yet that is absolutely the command of God here is to learn to be patient with them. It's not a, it's not a suggestion. It's not, uh, there's no caveat, right? To be patient with certain kinds of people who show at least an attempt to be agreeable, right? No, it's to be patient with them all, no matter what, no exclusions. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I think that flows pretty naturally out of the command to be patient, because when someone sins against us, whether it is in speech whether it is in some other way. We want justice, don't we? We want justice. Justice is right. It's right for us to desire justice in the world. When you're sinned against, the command of Scripture is not to, to overlook justice. It's not to say that justice doesn't matter. It's not to say that the wrongs that were done to you don't matter. I think sometimes we can think that, that we just have to ignore sin that was done to us if we're going to be patient with other people, or, or, or if we're not going to take vengeance in our own hands and, and, and get revenge, we just have to pretend that nothing happened. That's not what, what Paul says. He says, in these circumstances, that we should not repay someone evil when they do evil to us. He's acknowledging that evil was done to you, but that you must fight against the desire to get revenge and to do evil in return, whether it is in the moment with that harsh word spoken, or whether it is a slow and methodical plan to get revenge. You know, examine your hearts, brothers and sisters, and look, when you are sinned against, look for what is in your heart where you desire revenge in this way. Now, Paul doesn't say it here, but he does say in Romans 12, why? He gives us a very strong motivation when he says that we are to live, leave vengeance in the hands of God. We're not to return evil to anyone who does evil to us because God is a God of vengeance. God is a just God, and God will never overlook evil that is done to you. Now, I don't remember who it is who said this, but it's always stuck, uh, stuck with me that there are two ways in which God will deal with evil or has dealt with evil that is done to us as, as his children. The first way is that if it was done by a brother or sister in Christ or someone who will become a brother and sister in Christ, that evil was dealt with at the cross. And Jesus Christ took the punishment on the cross for that evil that your brother or sister did to you. Or God will show justice on the last day, to those who are outside of Christ. Absolute justice will be shown. There is no overlooking of justice with God. 
He doesn't forget to be just, ever. There is no sin that has ever been committed against you that hasn't or won't be dealt with in an absolutely, strictly just manner by God. That is the motivation, then, for us to leave justice in the hands of God. And even there, I don't mean to never seek a remedy, right? There are all sorts of biblical remedies for sin. If someone sins against you, there's a whole, um, a whole process of bringing that to the church or bringing it to them when they've sinned against you and so on. But what, what stirs up in our hearts, what comes up in our hearts when we're sinned against is the desire to get payback, isn't it? And God says for that, do not repay someone evil for evil. Know that he is just, And that their sin has either been dealt with on the cross, Christ bore it in their place so that you can forgive them, or or, or God himself will judge that sin and that sinner on the last day, and it's not up to you to do it. That's what we feel, isn't it, in those moments? It's up to me to make justice happen in this moment. But it is so amazingly freeing to remember that God is a God of justice, and to leave it to him, to not repay anyone evil for evil, but always to seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Well, our third point is to move into this, uh, th- these commands that cause us to look up into heaven, to look heavenward. Starting in verse 16. Rejoice always. Two words. And yet, how hard are those words for us? Rejoice always. There is a lot in this world to be anxious about. There's a lot in this world to be sorrowful about. There is a lot of sin and evil in this world. And each one of us in different ways is experiencing that evil and that sin. Having been sinned against, uh, seeing the evil and the sin all around us. We have a million, uh, we have an infinite number, really, of reasons not to rejoice. And yet the command for us as God's people is to rejoice always. To rejoice always. Well, how, how can we do that? How can we rejoice in light of all of this evil and sin that we see in our own hearts and around us? There is no simple answer. There's no short answer, really. Or at least there's no easy answer to this. This is a, a supernatural work. You can't work this in your own heart. You can't, you can't just tell yourself, well, I just need to be um, a more optimistic person. I just need to be more positive today. Right? That, 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 that'll, that's a, a kind of false um, application of this. It's just be more cheerful um, in general. That's probably a good thing uh, to do. But rejoicing, this is the work of God. This is the work of His Holy Spirit in us. And, and the only thing we can do to find this in our hearts, and to stir it up within our own hearts, is to constantly come back to the goodness of Christ. There is no other way to find strength to rejoice daily, but to remember Christ gave himself for you. Christ gave himself for you, and he promises you that whatever trials that you face, he will be with you in the midst of those. We've seen that actually throughout 1 Thessalonians repeatedly. In chapter 1, verse 6, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, it's the work of the Spirit, even in the midst of affliction. Whatever is going on in your life, you can rejoice, but only if you fix your hope 
firmly on Christ every single time. And that's going to be day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. You're never going to get to the point where this is easy because of, because of sin. But you come back to Christ over and over and over. What has he done for you? How much does he love you? That he gave himself for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. He went, when you were his enemy, to the cross for you, brothers and sisters, who look to him in faith. Come back to that day after day after day. Rejoice always because Christ is for you and one day he will come back and he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And yes, it's going to be hard in the meantime, but he hasn't forgotten about you. He is coming back for you. Pray without ceasing. Now, I I don't want to discourage people from praying vehemently, but pray without ceasing could also be translated pray constantly. And here, the reason I say that is Paul is not urging some sort of superhuman prayer strength here to where you never stop praying, that there's never any moment where you have ceased from praying, that it's 24-7, All you ever do is pray, right? But he is saying, pray all the time. Make it your habit to pray. And and you're going to have to be concrete. You're going to have to be, uh, in some ways, just very very specific about this, right? Set times for prayer. Make lists for prayer. You you know that you're going to tend to forget to pray. So make a habit of it. Make a habit of it and pray throughout the day. But this is also not addressed merely to us as individuals. It's also something very important to keep in mind, is that there are many ways to pray. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your children. Gather around after a meal and pray with your family. Pray together as uh, men in the church, as women in the church. This is not merely a command to us as individuals. This is given to all of us. It's actually it's in the plural, the plural you. All of you pray constantly. I think we can sometimes start to feel kind of guilty because we, we, we put this, this, um, this sense upon ourselves that this is all just me in my own private time of prayer. One of the most encouraging things we can do is pray with others and for others. And we are keeping this command when we do that. It's not just about you as an individual. Certainly, I'm sure we could all pray more. Um, And when we see that the grace of God comes to us in answer to prayer, how can that not motivate us uh, to pray? Well, give thanks in all circumstances. Many things we could say about that, but at the heart of a sinful turning from God, as Paul says in Romans 1, is a refusal to give thanks. The people of this world, those outside of Christ, they've been given so many good things. Life itself, food, clothing, a place to live. And yet they refused to thank God. And Paul says that is at the heart of sinful turning from God is a refusal to give thanks. When when we don't give thanks, we're saying to God, you did not do right. I know better than you. And what is that? That's just the seed of unbelief. Even as God's people then, we're going to have to fight against this temptation to to grumble and to complain against God. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, commands in 19 through 22, um, they, they hold together, right? Because this is about how God reveals himself to us. Do not quench the spirit. 
Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is about how God shows himself to us and reveals himself to us. He does it through the prophetic word. Now, if we were living in Paul's day, prophecies were still being given by God because the word of God had not been completely given to God's people. Now, we have the full deposit. We have the the, the total word of God in the scriptures. And the way that we keep these commands, not to quench the spirit, not to despise prophecies, but to test everything, is to test everything by God's word. That is our criterion. How do we decide how to live? How do we decide what is right, what is true, what we should do in the world? It is by God's word. It is by the prophetic word given to us in the scriptures. Don't quench the spirit. Listen to what God is saying to you in his word. Have a submissive heart to God's word. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good in the scriptures. Now, it's very easy. This is such a common way for Christians to speak is to talk about God is leading me to do this. God is leading me to this. I feel this and I feel that and all of that, right? Test everything according to the prophetic word, according to the scriptures. Everything. Test your feelings according to scriptures. Test what you think is the prompting of God according to the scriptures. Is it in God's word? Because how we feel doesn't matter. What we think and what we think God is calling us to do doesn't matter. What God is calling us to do in the scriptures, that's what matters. Test everything according to the prophetic word. Don't quench the spirit because the spirit works only through God's word. The spirit will only prompt us and lead us through God's word. Well, in all of this, right, so many commands, and there's so much to, to, to think about. There's so much for us to consider as we go out this morning. But to bring this all to a close, I want to come back to that idea of consecration, right? That's how Paul ends the entire letter here, is that he prays for God's people that the God of peace himself would sanctify you completely and that your whole spirit and soul and body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He will surely do it. That is God's will for each and every one of us in Christ, is that we would be sanctified completely, that we would give ourselves over completely to the Lord, but only by the power of God's Spirit at work in our hearts. God, as we read earlier in chapter 5, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was given to rescue us from the penalty that we deserve because of our sin, but also from the misery and the bondage that we once lived in, to rescue us from all of that, to rescue us from living for ourselves in all these different ways, to deliver us, to consecrate us, to sanctify us, to set us apart for God, to be his special possession. That is why Christ came. He came, as Paul said elsewhere, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to be our redemption and our sanctification and our justification. What an amazing thought. Christ is our sanctification. He is our holiness. He is the only perfect holiness by which we can stand before a holy God. And he has set us apart in his holiness to reflect that in every aspect of our lives. In Christ, 
you are blameless. In Christ, you are holy. You are sanctified. And yet you are called to reflect that in every aspect of your life. And it's hard, isn't it? Sometimes our response to all of this is going to be, and I know it's going to be this, because this is our sinful tendency, is to make excuses and say, yeah, but what about um, this exception and that exception? What about this time when this person does this and, and, and this and, and so on? Sometimes all we need, and this is what I think Paul is doing here, is just to be reminded of what God requires of us. This is what God requires of us. No excuses, no caveats, no ways out. And to ponder that and to think of that, but then, as always, to come back to that wonderful truth that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, of course, Paul ends his letter then with what we need more than anything, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And that's what I leave you with this morning. That's what you're left with every morning as we worship the Lord on Sunday. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you to strengthen you to such a difficult call upon each one of our lives. In the joy of the Holy Spirit, in the joy of our Savior who washed us white as snow in His blood, And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning confessing that we have fallen far short of your glory, far short of what you require. We see this call on our lives and we we instantly think of all the ways that we have not met that call. And we even confess to you that We are so prone to make excuses and to try to rationalize and excuse our sin. But I pray this morning for each and every one of us that we would humble ourselves under your word, that we would see the truth about ourselves so that we could see the glorious truths of our Savior, the salvation that we have in him, that your wrath passes us by because it is placed on him. And that we are no longer condemned. That we stand blameless, washed white as snow in our Savior Jesus Christ. We praise you and we thank you that you've given us your spirit to fight sin. And to see how good Christ is. It's in his most precious name that we pray this morning. Amen.